Hello and welcome to episode 94 of Pay-Per-View, placing newspaper headlines and current events into their true context. And the first story for this episode is, COVID is making a comeback. Yes, the sequel to the blockbuster is coming soon. The global smash hit, which dominated our television screens around the world in 2020 and 21 22 is expected to hit television screens once again around the world in winter just before i get to the latest press release for the tv show i want to mention a brilliant website which exposes the covid hoax covid crime as i'm now calling it like never before called the end of covid.com The website features over 100 hours of content in the form of interviews, documents, documentaries and downloadable material covering everything that has happened over the last few years. Over the course of over 90 sessions, the website covers everything from the origin and fallacies of germ theory, the idea, false idea I would say, that viruses and bacteria etc. cause disease or even exist in terms of viruses, and the COVID policies and narratives, all of it which exposes pandemics for what they really are, one big show. If enough people become aware of this information and act upon it by refusing to take this nonsense any longer, then finally the show is over. And from October the 1st to the 11th, it's completely free to watch. It was originally, I think it was July to August, I think it was on the website available for free for a month. But uh, anyway, from October, the 1st to the 11th, it's free again for people to watch. So they're running trailers for the return of COVID on television now, When here's the latest press release. This is in the Daily Mail. COVID and flu jab brought forward over a concerning COVID variant. Vaccines to be deployed in less than a fortnight over fears parola will overwhelm NHS. England's annual flu and COVID vaccine drive is being brought forward due to fears the heavily mutated Perola variant will trigger a fresh wave and overwhelm the NHS. The Department of Health and Social Care in Britain announced vaccinations for care home residents and vulnerable adults will now start earlier than scheduled. GPs and pharmacies will begin dishing out the jabs from September 11th, a full month earlier than originally planned. The precautionary move comes amid fears over the spread of the mutated Perola variant of COVID, technically called BA286. Health chiefs confirmed a second Brit has been infected with the string, with the test not testing for the virus in truth. Anyway, the article continues. Ministers said they had made the decision to reduce pressure on the health service while scientists rushed to learn more about Perola, described as a real deal and the most striking that the world has seen since Omicron first emerged. Announcing the move, Health Minister Maria Caulfield said, As our world-leading scientists gather more information on the BA286 variant, it makes sense to bring forward the vaccination programme. It is absolutely vital the most vulnerable groups receive a vaccine to strengthen their immunity over winter to protect themselves and reduce pressure on the NHS. I encourage anyone invited for a vaccination, including those yet to have their first, to come forward as soon as possible. Bringing the jab rollout forward was based on advice from the UK Health Security Agency that speeding up the rollout would offer people greater protection from becoming severely ill from the virus. The UK Health Security Agency is used to be Public Health England Government Health Agency, but now it's merged with the Security Network in Britain. The article continues, This the agency claimed would have the added benefit of reducing pressure on the NHS. 
UK Health Security Agency Chief Executive Dame Jenny Harris said, Thanks to the success of our vaccine programme, we have built strong, broad immune defences against new variants throughout the population. However, some people remain more vulnerable to severe illness from COVID. This precautionary measure to bring forward the autumn programme will ensure that these people have protection against any potential wave this winter. Dame Jenny added that the agency was continuing to evaluate Perona. There is limited information available at present on BA286, so the potential impact of this particular variant is difficult to estimate. As with all emergent and circulating COVID-19 variants, both in the UK and internationally, we will continue to monitor BA286 and to advise government and the public as we learn more. In the meantime, please come forward for the vaccine when you are called. The article continues. NHS officials said they would work quickly to ensure as many eligible people as possible are vaccinated by the end of October to prepare for a challenging winter. Professor Sir Stephen Powis, NHS England Medical Director, said vaccinations are our best defence against flu and COVID-19 ahead of what could be a very challenging winter. And with the potential for this new COVID variant to increase the risk of infection, we are following the latest expert guidance and bringing the COVID vaccination programme forward, with people able to get their flu vaccine at the same time to maximise protection. NHS Director of Vaccinations and Screening, Steve Russell, said, While we know that flu and COVID usually hit hardest in December and January, the new COVID variant presents a greater risk now, which is why we will be ensuring as many people as possible are vaccinated against COVID sooner. While COVID is the focus in the change of timeline for the jab rollout, officials will also dish out the flu jab early for operational expediency. Care home residents are being prioritised in the rollout, but other groups as well as the clinically vulnerable, those aged 65 and over, health and social care staff and carers are also expected to be called forward for jabs in September. England is so far the only UK nation to announce a change in its autumn vaccination programme. UK scientists were first alerted to Perola on August 14th, but concerns immediately triggered due to its large number of mutations. The UK Health Security Agency officially classified it as a variant on August 18th after the first UK case was detected in a hospitalised patient in London and concern continued to grow across the globe about its spread. Officials today confirmed that a second case had been confirmed as of August 28th. No further details were provided about the person. It is unclear what part of the country they are in or whether they have been hospitalised. However, experts believe many more are infected. Brits are no longer testing en masse like they were earlier in the pandemic, with free community mass testing ending in May 2022. It means fewer cases are being detected and sequenced, a process which reveals the variant behind an infection. Fresh data from the Office for National Statistics shows there were 74 coronavirus deaths recorded across England and Wales in the week to August 11th. Scientists warn that the uptick in deaths could signal that a new variant is spreading. They also call for a return of pandemic mitigation measures, including mask wearing and increased ventilation because of the virus's resurgence. While the weekly surge in deaths is the biggest log this year, the number dying due to the virus is still a fraction of the death toll earlier in the year. For comparison, weekly deaths caused by the virus spiked at 654 in January. These ONS figures only include fatalities when COVID was the main cause of death. Global cases of Pirola have doubled in a week, having now been spotted in Sweden and Canada for the first time. Pirola, a descendant of the Omicron variant, was first detected in Israel and Denmark earlier this month. It has since been spotted in the UK, US, Israel, Denmark, South Africa, Portugal, Thailand and Switzerland. The spread has unsettled a swathe of top scientists who were worried that its catalogue of mutations could see it spark another wave of cases. Experts have also warned that the true scale of Perona's spread is unclear as the world has scaled back variant tracking capabilities from the height of the pandemic. Experts and scientists, they're always concerned, aren't they? They're always in fear or worried or warning or concerned. They must spend their lives 
in a permanent state of anxiety and fear because that's all they ever seem to do the article continues other scientists have cautioned cautioning now that it is too early to panic about the new variant there is currently no evidence that perola is any more of a threat than the dozens of strains that have come before it perola has not yet been observed to make people more seriously ill than other omicron descendant variants or having any enhanced ability to dodge the immunity protection offered from current vaccines or prior infection And the next story for this episode is masks. This is in the Daily Mail. Mask study published by NIH's National Institutes of Health in America suggests N95 COVID masks may expose wearers to dangerous levels of toxic compounds linked to seizures and cancer. The surgical N95 mask has been held up as the gold standard when it comes to protecting against COVID, but a study quietly reshared by the National Institutes of Health in spring suggests the tight-fitting mask may expose users to dangerous levels of toxic chemicals. Researchers from Jeonbuk National University in South Korea looked at two types of disposable medical-grade masks as well as several reusable cotton masks. The study found that the chemicals released by these masks had eight times the recommended safety limit of toxic volatile organic compounds. Inhaling TVOCs has been linked to health issues like headaches and nausea, while prolonged and repeated use has been linked to organ damage and even cancer. It is clear that particular attention needs to be paid to VOCs linked with the use of KF94 medical masks and their effect on human health, researchers wrote in the study published April. However, there are ways to reduce the danger, they said. Exposure can be significantly reduced if a mask is opened and is left to sit for around 30 minutes, the researchers wrote. This suggests that the packaging in these masks play a role in the amount of chemicals they have. The study was published in the journal Ecotoxicology and Environmental Safety on the NIH's website. The NIH said, Inclusion in an NLM database does not imply endorsement of or agreement with the contents by NLM or the National Institutes of Health. The researchers found the levels of TVOCs were 14 times lower in cloth masks and did not pose a risk to human health. However, the study did not measure the effects of people actually wearing the masks. Dr. Stuart Fisher, an internal medicine physician in New York, told DailyMail.com that strong conclusions could not be drawn from the study. However, he did say evidence shows drawbacks on mask wearing. He added there seems to be diminishing returns on the need for masks. The article continues. In the latest study, researchers tested 14 disposable and cloth masks purchased online by measuring the amount of TVOCs in them. The disposable masks were KFAD and KF94 models which were made from thermoplastics, polypropylene and polyurethane nylon. The differences are minuscule. KFADs and KF94s filter 94% of particles while KN95s filter 95%. Cloth masks were made from cotton, ramy, a vegetable fibre, and polyurethane. These TVOC concentration levels corresponded to a level that is harmless to the human body. No relevant health-related concerns, the researchers wrote. However, the disposable mask contained up to 14 times the TVOCs than cotton masks. The Environmental Protection Agency recommends keeping TVOC levels between below 0.5 parts per million in indoor air. The sample with the highest amount of TVOCs had 4,808 cubic metres per microgram, which is about 4.8 parts per million. That's more than eight times the recommended limit. TVOCs have been shown to irritate the eyes, nose and throat, cause difficulty breathing and nausea, and damage the central nervous system and organs like the liver, according to the American Lung Association. Some are even considered human carcinogens, meaning they can cause cancer. The researchers specifically flagged the chemicals DMAC and DMF for being linked to liver and reproductive damage. 
The team acknowledged that the sample size was small and that they did not test several other popularly disposable masks like KN95s. The study builds off previous research suggesting that mask wearing could cause more harm than good. Research carried out by the Cochrane Institute, for example, suggested that face masks made little to no difference in COVID infections and deaths. Though the findings were published in April, the study could have new relevance as COVID variant BA286 spreads across America. The newly found dangers of masks considered the most protective could make mask mandates ineffective. And here's a quote from my new book, Reality Check, from Dr. Margarita Grease Brisson. So, Margarita Grease Brisson is a consultant neurologist and neurophysiologist with a PhD in pharmacology with a special interest in neurotoxicology, environmental medicine, neuroregeneration, and neuroplasticity or brain plasticity, in other words, which is the brain's ability to change in the face of new information. You know, scientists used to think that the brain at birth was the brain for life, but now they know that the brain can change with information received. So Brisson says, the re-inhalation of our exhaled air will without a doubt create oxygen deficiency and a flooding of carbon dioxide. We know that the human brain is very sensitive to oxygen deprivation. There are nerve cells, for example, in the hippocampus that cannot be longer than three minutes without oxygen. They cannot survive. The acute warning symptoms are headaches, drowsiness, dizziness, issues in concentration, slowing down of reaction time, reactions of the cognitive system. However, when you have chronic oxygen deprivation, all of those symptoms disappear because you get used to it. But your efficiency will remain impaired and the undersupply of oxygen in your brain continues to progress. We know that neurodegenerative diseases take years to decades to develop. If today you forget your phone number, the breakdown in your brain would have already started 20 or 30 years ago. While you're thinking that you have gotten used to wearing your mask and rebreathing your own exhaled air, the degenerative processes in your brain are getting amplified as your oxygen deprivation continues. The second problem is that the nerve cells in your brain are unable to divide themselves normally. So in case our governments will generously allow us to get rid of the mask and go back to breathing oxygen freely again in a few months, the lost nerve cells will no longer be regenerated. What is gone is gone. I do not wear a mask. I need my brain to think. I want to have a clear head when I deal with my patients and not be in a carbon dioxide induced anesthesia. There is no unfounded medical exemption from face masks because oxygen deprivation is dangerous for every single brain. It must be the free decision of every human being whether they want to wear a mask that is absolutely ineffective to protect themselves from a virus. For children and adolescents, masks are an absolute no-no. Children and adolescents have an extremely active and adaptive immune system and they need a constant interaction with the microbiome of the earth. Their brain is also incredibly active as it has so much to learn. The child's brain, or the youth's brain, is thirsting for oxygen. The more metabolically active the organ is, the more oxygen it requires in children and adolescents every organ is metabolically active to deprive a child or an adolescent's brain from oxygen or to restrict it in any way is not only dangerous to their health it is absolutely criminal oxygen deficiency inhibits the development of the brain and the damage that has taken place as a result cannot be reversed the child needs the brain to learn and the brain needs oxygen to function. We don't need a clinical study for that. This is simple, indisputable physiology. Consciously and purposely induced oxygen deficiency is an absolutely deliberate health hazard and an absolute medical contraindication. 
an absolute medical contraindication in medicine means that this drug, this therapy, this method or measure should not be used and it's not allowed to be used. It's coerced an entire population to use an absolute medical contraindication by force. There must be definite and serious reasons for this and the reasons must be presented to competent interdisciplinary independent bodies to be verified and authorised. When in 10 years dementia is going to increase exponentially and the younger generations could not reach their God-given potential, it won't help to say we didn't need the masks. How can a veterinarian, a software distributor, a businessman, an electrical car manufacturer and a physicist decide on matters regarding the health of the entire population? Please, dear colleagues, we all have to wake up. I know how damaging oxygen deprivation is for the brain. Cardiologists know how damaging it is for the heart. Pulmonologists know how damaging it is for the lungs. Oxygen deprivation damages every single organ. Where are our health departments, our health insurance, our medical associations? It would have been their duty to be vehemently against the lockdown to stop it from the very beginning. Why do the medical boards issue punishments to doctors who give people exemptions? Does the person or the doctor seriously have to prove that oxygen deprivation harms people? What kind of medicine are our doctors and medical associations representing? Who is responsible for this crime? The ones who want to enforce it, the ones who let it happen and play along, or the ones who don't prevent it? It's not about masks, it's not about viruses, it's certainly not about your health. It is about much more. I am not participating, I am not afraid. You can notice they are already taking our air to breathe. The imperative of the hour is personal responsibility. We are responsible for what we think, not the media. We are responsible for what we do, not our superiors. We are responsible for our health, not the World Health Organization. And we are responsible for what happens in our country, not the government. And Britain there is absolutely correct. The mask mandating policy is not about protecting from a virus, even if one existed, but about control, dehumanisation and oxygen deficiency. And Britain talks about a flood of carbon dioxide there in her quote. And masks can cause respiratory acidosis, a condition that occurs when the lungs cannot remove all of the carbon dioxide produced by the body, the consequences of which are or include accelerated heartbeat, tachycardia, confusion or dizziness, feeling very tired, fatigue, loss of appetite, headache, rapid breathing or long deep breathing, nausea and vomiting, feeling weak, etc. And the next story for this episode is erectile dysfunction. This is in the Daily Mail. Thought you were hard left? Rates of erectile dysfunction among U.S. men have nearly doubled to 30 million in recent years, data suggests. Um, progressive woke, in other words. Progressive states are behind the rise. The number of men seeking treatment for erectile dysfunction has soared in recent years amid what some have described as a silent epidemic. Viagra, the little blue pill, is normally associated with old people, but the most recent figures suggest an estimated 30 million American men now live with erectile dysfunction, nearly twice as many in the early 2000s. Around a quarter of under 40s are thought to struggle to get an erection in bed, which has been linked to a rise in obesity rates, poor mental health and overconsumption of pornography. 
Pill prescribing rates vary by state, but research shows the ones that lean left politically tend to have more little blue pills in circulation, which men's health experts say could translate to more open dialogue between patients and doctors about sexual health issues that are taboo in many conservative states. Dr. Helen Burney, director of sexual and reproductive medicine at Indiana University, said the most progressive states, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, California, Nevada, they are typically more progressive states with better produ- reproductive rights. So you would assume that maybe people talk about sex a little bit more. Maybe it's a little bit more okay to prescribe medicines there. The article continues. Overall, southern states had far fewer pill bottles in circulation, with the exception of Florida, where ED prescriptions made up to a quarter of a percent of the total field there. Then you look at the alternative. Down south, the strong Bible Belt, there's a lot strong religious ties and just in general people generally don't talk about sex we can only talk about abstinence or pregnancy so maybe doctors are not asking their patients about sexual activities and they're not prescribing as much of the medication it's taboo the article continues it is for this reason that dr bernie said that the true number of men with erectile dysfunction is likely much higher than the estimated 30 million if a doctor living in a conservative leaning area where sex is not freely discussed does not bring up a taboo subject in safety of the exam room the patient is not likely to either erectile dysfunction is often a biomarker for a man's overall health an inability to achieve or maintain an erection could be a result of undiagnosed high cholesterol or blood pressure or possibly a warning sign of cardiovascular disease. Dr. Bernie added, that's the most simple question you need to ask. Do you have any problems achieving or maintaining an erection? And by asking that simple question, you will find an answer which will open up the dialogue between the patients to be able to actually ask questions and seek treatment options for for preventative health. The article continues, Erectile dysfunction is most often considered in older men because of the many age-related changes the body undergoes, such as naturally declining testosterone levels, weakened pelvic muscles and a loss of the necessary nerve function that helps the brain communicate with other systems in the body that leads to an erection. But in younger men, the source of the problem is often psychological. Performance, anxiety and high levels of stress can affect the delicate balance of hormones in the body and functioning of the nervous system. Testosterone levels typically peak at around the age of 20, followed by a slow descent throughout the rest of adulthood. At their highest, testosterone levels should be anywhere between 300 and 1,200 NG. Once men hit their mid-30s, testosterone levels begin declining by at least 1% per year. Pornography use and overuse can also contribute to ED. Constant exposure to explicit images and videos desensitizes the viewer, making the brain less responsive to sexual stimuli such as your partner standing in front of you naked and repeat exposure to porn can lead to the same disruptions in the brain as do hard drugs the brain's reward system releases dopamine when something that feels good happens whether it's finding food in the middle of a desert snorting cocaine or watching hardcore porn over time the brain becomes used to the images and videos and does not get the same heavy hit of dopamine when the person presses play this hinders the brain's reward system and makes it more difficult for the brain to get excited for the real thing but people's desire for porn likely won't change anytime soon internet viewing has increased consistently over the past two decades which suggests that the pool of young men with erectile dysfunction will only expand and as the American population gets greyer by the year, the prevalence of erectile issues can potentially increase still further, translating to even bigger profit margins for the companies behind drugs like Viagra and Cialis. 
And the next story for this episode is Wildfires. This is in the Daily Mail. What started the Canadian wildfires? Experts reveal root cause of toxic smoke suffocating America. The Canadian wildfires have sent a thick blanket of smoke down America's east coast. The Canadian wildfires that sent a thick blanket of smoke down America's east coast have been raging for at least six weeks, destroying 12,741 square miles of forest and land and prompting thousands to be evacuated from their homes. Now many have argued that the blazes and ensuing smoke choke could have been avoided with better forest management. They say too few controlled burns are being performed to clear the forest of flammable surplus. In 2020, four scientists wrote a paper published in Progress in Disaster Science in which they said not enough money was being spent by Canada on managing forests. Wildfire management agencies in Canada are at a tipping point. Pre-suppression and suppression costs are increasing, but programme budgets are not, they wrote. In July 2021, the editorial board of Canada's Globe and Mail newspaper warned that more needed to be done to hold controlled burns and reduce the problem of out-of-control wildfires, while others say climate change is directly responsible due to the warming of the planet. Canada had an extremely dry and snow-free winter, which left all 10 provinces currently facing conditions termed abnormal dryness, moderate or severe drought, according to the Canadian government's drought tracker. In June 2021, Canada experienced its hottest day ever when the town of Lytton in British Columbia hit 121 degrees Fahrenheit, smashing the previous record of 113 degrees. It tied California's Death Valley as the hottest place in North America that day, and this year the wildfire season has begun incredibly early. More than 1,400% of the normal amount of acres is burned for this time of the year, 8.7 million acres so far in 2023, an area the size of Vermont. In an average year, 6.2 million acres were burned due to wildfires. Dry, hot weather also brings more lightning. Half of Canada's wildfires are started by lightning, the other half by humans. Lightning sparked fires are more destructive than human caused, however, they account for more than 85% of wildfire destruction. Just in Trudeau, Canada's Prime Minister tweeted this wildfire season has already been devastating for communities across the country. We're taking action to keep people safe, to support those affected, and to make sure the provinces and territories have the assistance they need. Wildfires are not started by climate change and naturally occur, but the change in climate with drier conditions provides more kindling and makes their impact more severe. Some scientists believe rising global temperatures can affect the jet stream's flow, making it weaker. That allows air to sit stagnant for longer and heat up. And there's another article following off from that. This is on the Daily Exposed website, which does a lot of great uh, research and articles. What fueled the Hawaiian wildfires that killed dozens and destroyed historic Lahaina town Maui? Much of the historic town of Lahaina, the previous home to around 12,000 people in western Maui, has been destroyed by wildfires. This tragedy has been said to be the largest natural disaster in Hawaii's history, but not everyone is convinced that this was a natural disaster at all, instead believing that it was fueled by a directed energy weapon. The fires caught islanders and tourists by surprise. Some individuals even fled into the ocean to escape the flames. Thousands of Maui residents were forced to evacuate, and tragically at least 99 people have died, and hundreds of families have been displaced. With power and cell service out in western Maui, officials don't know how many people who may have tried to escape are still missing, said officials, adding that the devastation is so widespread and catastrophic it's hard to estimate just how many buildings were burned to the ground or damaged, but they estimate hundreds of structures were impacted, according to CBS. What we saw was likely the largest natural disaster in Hawaii's state history, says Governor Josh Green. However, 
Not everyone is convinced the article continues that this was a natural disaster at all. The official story from the mainstream media is that a fallen power line started a small flame. It was then fanned on by the large winds from a hurricane, but what really caused the massive wildfires that had burned through much of Paradise Island, Maui and Hawaii. Well, according to Edward Hendry from Great Mountain Publishing, Lahaina was destroyed by a directed energy weapon. There were some strange things about the alleged wildfire at Lahaina, Hawaii. Notably, the spokesman who explained what happened was not a fire official or any anyone from the local government with any knowledge of firefighting or emergencies. Instead, we find Major General Kenneth Hara, the commanding general of the Hawaii Army National Guard. He stated that he did not know what ignited the fires, but he opined that low humidity and high winds set the conditions for the wildfires. He is an army general. What does he know about forest fires? There is reason to question the general's claim. The wildfire would only make sense of a forest of trees surrounded the city of Lahaina. That is the first problem with the story. There is no forest near the town. Indeed, a satellite photo shows that the tallest trees near the city belong to the Maui Kuala Estate Cacao Farm. Cacao trees are pretty small, ranging in height between 13 and 26 feet, but those trees are across a highway several hundred yards from the nearest building. What about the trees within the city itself? There are lots of trees in the town, but when we look at the photos of the city after the alleged fire, we find that the trees in the town are mainly intact. Strangely, buildings that have been destroyed allegedly by fire are surrounded by trees untouched by flames. Something else is going on here. That something else is directed energy. The buildings were destroyed by directed energy weapons. Directed energy weapons use microwaves, electromagnetic waves in other words. They cause molecular destruction in materials that absorb them. Wood remains unfazed because wood absorbs very little microwave radiation. It is similar to how you can put a paper plate in a microwave without concern that it will catch fire but if you put aluminium foil into the same microwave and we saw the characteristic trait of directed energy weapons used in wildfires where buildings and other structures are destroyed and trees remain intact. You can be far more discriminate with a directed energy weapon uh, than you can with a fire which just blazes indiscriminately. And the article features videos and tweets from people who are showing their evidence who are there or were there that directed energy weapons were used. There's a lot of tweets about that apparently on Twitter. Or not, I refuse to call it X, it's Twitter as far as I'm concerned. And, of course, if the authorities move in to take the land, apparently there's talk of 15-minute cities now in Hawaii, the first one uh, ever since the, uh, as a result of the wildfires. That would absolutely suggest that directed energy weapons were used because it's a way of clearing the land and taking it over. And the final story for this episode is Renewable Energy. This is in the Telegraph. Don't believe the renewables myth. Wind and solar are not cheap. Politicians everywhere are repeating the mantra that renewable energy is cheap and we need to use it instead of gas, currently expensive in and near Europe, to bring down energy costs for households. As US President Joe Biden said of clean energy before signing the poetically named Executive Actions on Tackling Climate Change, Creating Jobs and Restoring Scientific Integrity, it's affordable because it's clean, because in many cases it's cheaper. Clean technologies will ultimately become cheaper than any other kind of energy, helping us dramatically expand our economy and create more jobs with a cleaner environment. He didn't think of that, obviously. It was uh, written for him and the article continues. The Inflation Reduction Act has been designed to make this a reality. Lots of investment in lovely green energy and green jobs. This sounds wonderful. Unfortunately, renewables are not cheap. To demonstrate, let's carry out a thought experiment. 
Imagine you build a machine. It's very expensive to build, but once it's done, it makes things. These things are identical in every way to things made by other people. Making things is very cheap. The machine runs on wind, sun, water, and has no fuel costs, and no raw materials are required. Making things is essentially free once you have built the machine. What will you charge to sell your things? Normally, you would want to recover the cost of building the machine and make... Normally, you would want to recover the cost of building the machine and make some profit. Ten years is reasonable to recover capital costs, so you work out how many things you'll make over ten years and spread the cost plus some profit between them. After ten years, you're happy to more or less give the things away, selling them for a minimal amount. But here's the rub. Down the road is another thing factory that was built 11 years ago, whose upfront costs have already been recovered. Those things are being sold for next to nothing. Who is going to buy your things now unless you also charge next to nothing? But if you do that, you can't pay back the money invested in building your machine. That means that unless you earn money from something other than selling things, you will never build your factory in the first place. In the electricity market, we get around the problem with the subsidies. Originally, subsidies were paid because the technology for producing renewable electricity was immature, meaning upfront costs were exceptionally high. But after more than 20 years of subsidies, this is no longer the case. Today, electricity prices are still determined for the most part by the cost of fossil fuels, so renewable electricity can be sold at much higher prices than the short-term cost of production, which is next to nothing. But even then, renewables still require subsidies. In fact, subsidies are growing. According to the Energy Information Administration, renewable subsidies in the US jumped to $15.6 billion in fiscal year 2022 from $7.4 billion in fiscal year 2016. In Britain, last year's subsidy round was held as the cheapest and best, but the projects which have for the most part stalled as developers asked for more money, despite the high market price of electricity. Only two projects have confirmed they will go ahead and begin construction, while Vattenfall cancelled its Boreas project in the North Sea and Orsted has warned that Horn C3 could be at risk without government action. To maintain the attractiveness of the investment environment, saying that it is working very hard to make the project financially viable, but that the electricity prices offered by the government are not high enough to compensate for surging development costs. If projects are not economic when electricity prices are at record highs, how will they work at a time work if a time comes when electricity prices are very low? Now that's the dirty little secret of the renewables game. The very high upfront costs mean developers have to be paid lots of money, and if the money from selling electricity is not enough, then it has to come from elsewhere. But ultimately, it comes out of consumers' pockets, whether directly through higher bills or indirectly through higher taxes. That's not all. Developed countries built their electricity grids decades ago when electricity came from a few large power stations. Renewable generation is built where it's windy, sunny, or has good access to water at height or moving fast for hydro. These places tend to be not where old power stations used to be or where consumers are. This means lots of new infrastructure is needed to connect it all up. Guess who has to pay for that? Next, the issue of intermittency. Wind and sun vary from moment to moment. Individual clouds make a measurable difference to generation, as do gusts of wind. This creates two additional challenges. One is that if there's no wind or sun, renewable output falls. The famous California duck curve measures the way solar output changes through the day with a major, with a major drop at sunset when, at, when gas power stations need to take over. Other sources of generation. There is no at-scale energy storage solution. How to be on standby to run when renewable output falls. But no one builds standby energy anything unless it's worth their while and that's another big chunk of change consumers have to cough up. 
The other problem with intermittency is that electricity grids need supply and demand to be finely balanced in real time. Grid equipment can be damaged if this balance is not maintained within narrow tolerances. If clouds and gusts of wind change supply from moment to moment, grid operators have to use a range of techniques such as discharging batteries, getting conventional power stations to vary output, or large users to vary consumption over short time frames. Unsurprisingly, nobody does any of this for free and other cost to consumers. The final sting in the tail is that the grid infrastructure, despite expansion to cope with renewables, often cannot use all the renewable electricity generated. This electricity is wasted in renewables generators have to be compensated through curtailment or congestion fees again paid for by consumers. According to consulting firm Grid Strategies, costs to consumers from congestion on the American power grid jumped 56% in 2022 to an estimated $20.8 billion from $13.3 billion the year before. In Britain, data from the UK Wind Curtailment Monitor show that consumers paid £125 million in 2022 to turn wind farms off and £717 million to buy replacement gas-fired generation. Even if the wholesale price of electricity fell to zero to reflect the short-run marginal cost of producing renewable electricity, the price paid by consumers would simply be more disconnected from the wholesale price than it is today. Consumers pay the wholesale price plus a network cost including congestion costs, plus a balancing cost, plus a subsidy cost, plus the retailer supplier operating cost, plus some profits for everyone in the chain from the generator to the network owner to the network operator to the retailer. And then, some taxes on top. And to hit net zero, the whole electrical system, expanded renewables, expanded grid, backup fossil balancing subsidies, curtailment payments and all, will have to be expanded to multiple times its current size as fossil fuels used directly in such things as heating and transport are replaced with electricity. Anyone who thinks all this is going to mean cheaper energy is dreaming. So, what is the true context of all these subjects? The foundation of the motivation for the cult's control agenda is energy, as I explain in Reality Check. Everything needs energy. If you want to control humanity, you need to control their access to energy. In short, you must make them dependent on you for what they need to survive. The cult have taken giant steps towards this, never more so than in the last few years. The COVID hoax destroyed businesses, livelihoods and incomes, exactly as planned. The goal is to create dependency, to create control. This agenda cannot be realised when people have an income independent of cult-controlled authority. It's sobering to think that at a time of a cost-of-living crisis and a restricted energy supply, not least due to the COVID hoax, human-caused climate change and a manipulated West-supported conflict between Russia and Ukraine, that free energy technology, which has existed for decades and uses the natural energy supply and energy fields of the planet to run and produce power, which would free the population from energy bills forever, is being suppressed, and I know this for a fact. This is the psychopathic mentality running the world exemplified by the global cult. It doesn't matter to them if people freeze, starve and die as long as they achieve their agenda. The plan is for the introduction of a guaranteed income which you will only get if you don't question or challenge authority. To change the status quo you must destroy the status quo to impose a new one. This was the main motivation along with the Covid fake vaccine for the cult playing the Covid card. The cult originated human caused climate change hoax is employed to this end. I say, for reasons explained in my books, that both hoaxes are found in our phenomena that is not happening. Viruses don't exist and humans don't cause climate change, neither does anything on Earth. The sun with its sunspot activity is the real cause of climate change, as I show in great detail in my first book. 
Far from CO2 being a pollutant, it is the gas of life without which we would all be dead. I've been saying for over a decade that the human cause climate change hoax seeks to justify the segregation of countries into specific sectors as exemplified in the Hunger Games movie series. We are now seeing the introduction and creation of 15-minute cities which you are not allowed to travel outside of without a fine, or at least that's the plan. The CBDC, or Central Bank Digital Currencies, or Cashless Society agenda, means that instead of a letter through the post informing you that you must pay a fine, which you can then contest if you feel you're within your rights to do so, the fine will be taken instantly and directly from your bank account. We will see this expand beyond 15-minute cities into other areas of society to intimidate and coerce. We also see now the ULES zone, promoted by Sadiq Khan. ULES stands for Ultra Low Emission Zone, which is being introduced as part of the agenda to remove private travel in favour of public travel, which again I've been talking about for over a decade. The cult don't want people driving or cycling or utilising any means of independent travel. If you want to go from one sector to another, you will need to travel on high-speed trains a la The Hunger Games. Shorter travel will be possible within sectors via other forms of public transport like buses. Uber is a cult creation to this end. The more people are dependent, the more they can be controlled. Travel will be impossible for anyone challenging authority, as will purchasing and even working. Indeed, many jobs depend on travel. Does this sound totalitarian? It should, because it is, and that's the idea. Destroying rural land is another means of achieving this agenda. Wildfires could be started by directed energy weapons, which can target specific objects. The agenda is to get people off the land and into smart cities controlled by technology and artificial intelligence. The level of surveillance planned for smart cities is of a kind the world has never seen before in human history. The smart cities agenda obviously requires depopulation, and this is where the COVID fake vaccines come in as well as a variety of other means of achieving depopulation. The COVID fake vaccine also includes nanotechnology and possibly other technological ingredients designed to connect humanity to the smart grid and artificial intelligence. The end game of the cult's agenda is this very connection to and replacement of the human mind by artificial intelligence. We need to end the end game. Addressing the technological AI takeover of human society and the human mind is one of the biggest contributions anyone can make. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the contesting connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>